Welcome to the first day of our six more weeks of winter. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> the groundhog that counted saw his shadow. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Bornowski. We got some news to talk about. Let's begin. Why do a bunch of Northeast Ohio nursing home residents have to get revaccinated for the coronavirus? Who screwed this up? Chris Ranowski, we were talking before we began the podcast about how I'm a little surprised that there aren't more errors, at least more errors that we know about. I would have thought that given the needs for the, the virus storage, that this would happen all the time. Mm-hmm. So, but it doesn't. And when it does, it's kind of a big story like this one is. So to answer your second question as to who screwed up, it looks like Walgreens is taking the the brunt of this one, although it's it's difficult to say, you know, given how convoluted the caring for these vaccine processes. It's hard to say where in the in the process these vaccines got spoiled, but Walgreens told the state that some of its uh, coronavirus vaccines it gave Monday may not have been stored at the proper temperatures. And when Walgreens noticed the error, uh, which was identified through a quality control procedure, it reached out to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the vaccine manufacturer and the Ohio Department of Health. And Laura Hancock reported that the pharmacy company is now working with the federal government and the vaccine manufacturer on identifying which residents at five Northeast Ohio nursing homes got these shots. They've sort of been able to track it to five homes, the Maples Ashtabula County Residential Services Corporation, Ashtabula Towers, Heather Hill Care Communities in Chardon, Six Chimneys in Cleveland and Willow Park Convalescence Home in Cleveland. So yeah, there there have been at least five people who who received shots that were deemed no good, and 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 they're trying to see if there's any more. Okay, so let's play today's version of questions that you're not going to be able to answer. <laughs> so so when I think of something that spoils, you know, mm-hmm. eating eggs and milk, and and this is something that's injected into you, I guess I'd love to know the science here. I mean, if if the vaccine gets beyond its expiration because of the temperature and it's injected into you, does it pose a danger or is it just it's ineffective and you got some stuff in you that's not going to matter? I mean, you're injecting this into your body and it's spoiled. I, I just, what does that mean? I Nobody got sick, right? No, there's no indication that this was harmful to anybody. And I don't know if that question was asked of the governor yesterday. Yeah, could I jump in there? Yeah, go ahead. I, I got this one. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the, the medical director of the Ohio Department of Health, our chief medical officer, explained, he said, no, this isn't like, don't use the, the comparison of like leaving a sandwich out too long or something. He said, this isn't really harmful. It's just that it's ineffective. So we don't expect people to be harmed. But I have a lot of questions about Okay, if you get the first dose, well, what if it was somewhat effective? And then they go revaccinate these people. And then usually with the second shot, you have a more potential to get sick afterward or have a reaction. And then if they get like a third shot, are they going to get like really sick or? But he did make it clear that it's not harmful. Well, but I would love to know what science is behind that, because let's face it, public health officials have not been truthful with this often during this pandemic. All you had to do is remember the masks that they talked about at the beginning. I, you're injecting this stuff into you, right? And so after a, it drops from a certain temperature, what is it? What are, you, what are you injecting? How does your body react to it? I think the science on that might ease everybody, Jane, for the very reasons you're talking about, because these are the cases we know about. 
But have there been other cases where somebody screwed up and didn't tell anybody because they don't want to get into trouble where people might have gotten ineffective vaccines? And what is it? What does it mean for them? Sounds like, it sounds like you're going to assign somebody a story about this. I feel like I feel oh, like no. there's a follow up story here. I do, I do think there is. We should we should ask about how this works. I mean, it's the whole thing. It's a whole new technology for vaccines. It's the RNA based vaccine. So what does it mean when it's expired? I'm still thinking of milk and yogurt. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How can the organizers of the Cleveland Auto Show continue to plan an event this year? with all the unknowns of the coronavirus. Laura Johnson, we had a long talk in the podcast earlier in the week about the the tourism people being upset with the 300-person limit on public gatherings and the need to get exemptions from the governor. So it's a bit surprising that very soon after we're talking about the auto show, which draws big crowds. So what is the plan here? They're planning to have one this year. What is the plan and how does that figure with the coronavirus? So here's the plan. The auto show, which draws hundreds of thousands of visitors in the past to the IX Center, where it's been hosting since the 80s, is going to move to the Huntington Convention Center downtown. It plans to run December 4th through 12th of this year. Obviously, the convention center is quite a bit smaller than the massive IX Center. So they want to have about 500 cars compared to 800 in the past. And setup's going to take a little bit longer. Can't, you're not going to have those giant bays of the IX Center, but they plan to use every bit of space. They want to put cars in the ballrooms, the hallways, and the adjoining public auditorium owned by Cleveland. Another challenge is parking, which isn't as easy as on those vast open lots. But they say they're looking forward to welcoming show attendees to downtown Cleveland. They're hoping that'll be vibrant. It might overlap with Browns or Cavs games. And they're going to have their popular ride and drives where visitors can test drive new cars on the streets of downtown. Now, obviously, here's the big question. It's the pandemic. And reporter Susan Glazer said she talked with the organizer a bit about safety protocols. They're hoping the pandemic is no longer an issue and there aren't any safety protocols, at least with the numbers of people they're allowed to have in place. But they acknowledge they still have to have authorization to open the facility. And they said if COVID's still an issue, there are ways to have a safe show by limiting capacity. They haven't thought that all the way through yet. They're they're hoping... (laughs) The coronavirus is an issue. I'm hoping it hits 80 today. Guess what? It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, there's this story out of London this morning that the there's a new mutation of the virus that has changed the very area targeted by vaccines and antibodies, which is what happens with coronaviruses. They change and survive. So the chances of us not dealing with the coronavirus in December are pretty much nil. I mean, we might have lots of people vaccinated and there might be a a slower spread, but it's going to be there and any public gathering risks spreading it. I just, I'm, I'm just surprised this, this came out of left field because I just figured we would not have big public gatherings this year indoors. Maybe we'll have fireworks on July 4th, but not, not something like this, but here they are in December, they're planning to have a bunch of people in the convention center. We'll have to see if that continues. It is a bit like Playhouse Square last year. Remember how they kept saying, yeah, we're going to be back. We're going to be back. And nobody thought they would be back. And they're still not oh, and back. They're still planning to, to open right in, in the late fall, I think. So people are yeah. banking on this being done. But you're right. That's a big question mark. It's not going to be done. It might be manageable, but we'll be dealing with it. There's very little doubt about that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Ohio have more than 150,000 residents waiting on pandemic unemployment checks? 
Jane Cahoon, this was a hell of a piece by Rich Exner. I didn't realize this was a problem. I mean, Ohio has really screwed up unemployment from day one in every way possible. Really? This is like one of the biggest embarrassments the state has ever had. Mike DeWine and John Houston really should be ashamed of their inability to fix it. What's going on with this one? Yeah, what don't we have a problem on with unemployment? So so this is complicated, but as you said, Rich did a really good job explaining it step by step. And there is a little bit of good news at the end of this story. So this pandemic unemployment assistance, otherwise known as PUA, was established under the CARES Act that that was the first stimulus package that Congress approved back in March. And it created these unemployment benefits for self-employed individuals and those whose incomes were too low for traditional unemployment. So Ohio got its PUA system up and running in mid-May and allowed people to file claims retroactive to February, according to that, that law. Now, the maximum number of weeks that you're supposed to get under that program was 39, and the benefits were not supposed to last beyond December 26th. But they later extended that to up to 46 weeks because Ohio's unemployment rate was was high enough for the state to qualify for these extended benefits. However, <laughs> the Ohio's unemployment rate in the fall dropped below this federal threshold to qualify for the extended benefits. So that cut off the extended benefits on December 12th. And that included even those who were approved for the seven extra weeks beyond the 39 weeks. You following me here? Yeah. Other PUA recipients kept getting their weekly checks through December 26 because they hadn't reached their original limit of 39. Now, here's where the little bit of good news comes in. The second round of stimulus that was signed into law on December 27th created up to 11 extra weeks of the PUA. So that's 50 weeks in all. But the state said this law came with so many changes that it's taken them a long time to get it up and running and to to implement it. Congress did sort of wait until the last minute to to put this on the states. But by this weekend, the state expects to be ready both for people new to, to PUA to file their claims and for people who have been approved for these seven extra weeks to begin receiving their payments retroactive to December 27th. I thought you were going to say the good news was that because of the number of fraud claims, the screw-ups and the delays are preventing fraudulent people from getting the money, but it's not. It's a, uh, it's a, yeah, I wouldn't assume that. What percentage of those 150,000 claims are, are bogus? Because as we know, fraud is running rampant in the system, and I think you're expecting a big national story today on the level of unemployment fraud. Yes, we are. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Just how bad did the opioid epidemic get as the pandemic raged across Ohio and the nation last year? Chris Ranaski, we've talked about this before, but we got some hard numbers yesterday to put it into perspective. Right. So what was what was interesting about this story was noting that early on in the pandemic, when we initially kind of shut the state down, there was an actual decrease in, in opioid overdose deaths. And that early drop in fatal overdoses is kind of being attributed to people trying to get their houses in order, like people stocking up on food, people having a lot to do in order to prepare for for being staying at home for a long time. But as as we inched into April and in June, and this information came from Attorney General Dave Yost's office, who looked at the whole state, April 1st to June 30th, those numbers went up higher 
than any other quarter in the past 10 years. And, and the spike was particularly troubling because the rate had been declining for about 24 months. Cuyahoga County reported about 602 overdose deaths in 2020, which was a small increase over the 582 the previous year. But keep in mind, the deaths were going down as of, as of March. So whatever increase it got back to was still pretty considerable. Fentanyl is is still the main villain here, uh, which you know is often mixed with heroin or cocaine, and it's being attributed to the lion's share of deaths. But the public health officials are basically saying that people are left at home feeling isolated. People lost access to things like group meetings. Some people probably took to doing Zoom AA meetings a little better than other people, and and. And so there's there's a lot of factors that attributed to this. It's sort of like a lot of, it's interesting. There's a lot of factors that people are speculating that that's the cause. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've seen anybody try to to fully assess it because you know it could simply be the isolation in homes, or 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 it could simply be that they're the people who would be seeking treatment can't get it. I wish we had a better understanding of that because it's it, you're it's such an alarming. Increase well, clearly, a lot of people are turning to the, the the drugs for some reason. It's 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 the un, there's so much unknown. There were there's so much additional stress on top of day to day stress. There's the the being isolated from your family. So many so many different things that that trigger people's addictions, and so it's it's like homicides. You know, we write about homicides and we try to figure out like, why are homicides increasing? And you go and you try to figure out the thing. And then you find out it's like many things. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and addiction is, is pretty much the same. We, we, you know, everybody, everybody comes to it at a different angle. And, And so what, what might be the reason that you get triggered to, to start using again might be completely different than the guy sitting next to you. So it, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and we, and we try to pin down answers for stuff like this, but it, it, it is, it is slippery and it's, it, and it's hard to just say it's one thing. Yeah. It's going to take some real research once we get to the, to the end of this. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. I've asked this question multiple times before, and I'm betting I'll be asking it again. What's the latest delay and cost overrun in the long-term effort to update Cuyahoga County computer systems? Lord Johnson, I, I just am astounded at the rank incompetence of the Armand Budish administration. It's the jail. It's the disregard of the charter. But this one boggles the mind because it has come up how many times? Like six times. They've had to come back to the council, hat in hand, and say, okay, we, we're spending many millions more. We're delaying again. This thing was supposed to be done in 2018, and it won't be done this year. What's the latest? Yeah, this is really incredible just how how long they've had to keep coming back for more money and more time. So this IT overhaul, it was supposed to be complete by the end of 2018. It's now supposed to cost taxpayers nearly $36 million. It's 44% over the original $25 million budget. And the latest reasoning is that the issue is HR, that they're saying recent delays are due to resignations of human resources and fiscal department employees who play key roles in the IT project. They're not even trying to blame the contractor in this case, which is Infor. They're saying, well, we lost people on our side, so it's going to take us at least another six months because it was supposed to be done in July. Now, these payroll and timekeeping aren't going to be done until the beginning of 2022. 
And I mean, so this came up in county council. Councilman Jack Schron questioned this. He said, you know, Doug Dykes, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast, resigned as HR director more than a year ago. He'd been indicted on criminal charges a year before that. So none of this should be surprising. But Deputy Chief Information Officer Jack Ryan said it was other lower ranking HR staffs in more recent months that have caused the problem. He said he would bet his job on the project being done by next January. Oh my but apparently in October 2019, he pledged to have the project done in April 2020. And he's still working and it's still not done. You know, the county used to turn to a guy back in the county commissioner days, a guy named Tom Hayes. When something was completely broken, they would bring this guy in and he would fix it. He was a master at dealing with the crisis. I'm, I'm just stunned that with the number of times this thing has been embarrassing, that they haven't created that version, that they haven't said, OK, never again do we want to go hat in hand to the council. Let's let's galvanize. Let's get on this. Let's move and fix it. They just don't do it. I mean, it's just the, the incompetence of this administration. You do get the feeling the curtain is finally coming down. I'm hearing tell of at least two really strong candidates that are going to be coming out in the near future on the Democratic side and that the people who've donated to Budish in the past are peeling away from him that, I mean, he may run again. If he does, I think he's going to be in for a surprise. I hear from people all the time about how angry they are about the failures of this administration. And here it is. We're talking about it yet again. I don't think a week goes by where we're not talking about some jaw-dropping failure of the Armin Budish administration. So he's up for re-election next year. So we still have almost two years of them. But it does feel like we might start to transition to maybe somebody competent. So this week in the CLE. How many lieutenant governors have been governor in Ohio like John Houston wants to do? Jane Cahoon, we talked about this last week. And then Mike McIntyre at Ideastream sent us a note answering some of our questions. Now Rich Exner has gone to the mat and figured it all out. <laughs> yeah, Rich went really far back in, in history to, to come up with the uh, definitive piece on this. So, we yes, we are talking about this in the context of John Houston wanting, wanting to be governor as opposed to a, a U.S. senator. But Rich found eight lieutenant governors in history who became governor, including three of the last six elected governors. That's Mike DeWine, George Voinovich, and, and Richard Celeste. However, of the eight lieutenant governors who've gone on to become governor, the first five did not make the move up by election, but instead by the resignation or death of the governor. And each of the three former lieutenant governors who, who later became governor through an election, they didn't go directly there. They had a gap in their service between the two jobs. So, you know, I don't know if that's going to give John Houston some pause that he might be wanting to take sort of a non-traditional path here. But for instance, Voinovich was lieutenant governor in 1979. But then after that, he became mayor of Cleveland for 10 years and then governor and then leaving to become a U.S. senator. And then Celeste was lieutenant governor from 1975 through 1979, but then didn't become governor until 1983. And then DeWine, he was Voinovich's lieutenant governor in 1991 to 94, but then he wasn't elected governor until 2018. He had a couple other jobs along the way. And then, you know, the as I said, the other five who took office for due to resignation or death, and that was Nancy Hollister in... Uh, Late December 1999, John W. Brown in January 1957. Okay, we don't need to go back uh, in time. 
You don't want to go back all the way to 1853 when the first lieutenant governor was the... I I do think John Husted's situation is markedly different from all the others and that he has had regular exposure to Ohioans during this pandemic. I mean, let's face it, we almost never saw Mary Taylor, right? I mean, you know, people probably had no familiarity with her. Houston's been on our screens and watched by tens of thousands of people week after week after week. Now, is that a plus or a minus? Because often when he's <laughs> on there, he's explaining why he can't fix the unemployment system. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a big <laughs> negative. But you're right. I And I've said this before. He's He's a much more active lieutenant governor, and he's headed this whole, you know, Innovate Ohio initiative. He's He's like Mr. Technology, getting technology to serve people better. And he, he's got a lot of things that he does on his own, not not just, you know, being Mike DeWine's prop or something like that. Well, and, you know, by being on television day in, week in, week out, he comes across as a human being and the voters do respond to that. I mean, they, 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 they've done this for the right reason. They've, they've tried to communicate regularly with Ohio, a little less effectively over the last six months than the first five. Uh, they, it's more sometimes the stonewalling now. But but they have been front and center. And so I, I do wonder if it positions him well. I guess we have to wait yeah. and see what the next. He's also been elected statewide before. Sorry to interrupt. You know, he was secretary of state before he was lieutenant governor. Yeah. So, well, well yep. it, 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 it's interesting it's happened, but he could be the first to go directly. That's presuming that the Republicans keep hold of the governor's mansion and the governor's office for all those years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the Ohio Senate trying to change the standards for companies that provide software counties use to maintain voter registration lists? Chris Ranowski, normally you'd think, okay, changing the standards, that's probably a good thing. Let's bring integrity. Something tells me maybe not so much here. Right. So a previous version of this bill that has been floated actually failed during December's lame duck session. But Senate Bill 14 would create something called the Board of Voting System Examiners, which would be responsible for vetting companies that provide voter registration systems. The new agency is a rebranding of the Ohio Board of Voting Machine Examiners, which provides oversight of voting machines and electronic poll books used by poll workers. But the bill would also give Secretary of State Frank LaRose the authority to develop standards of voting uh, voter registration systems would have to follow. LaRose has pushed for greater centralization of voting registration systems after seeing how the current system overseen by 88 different counties, county boards of election, has led to uh, voters improperly being purged from the rolls, either through mistakes or inconsistent understanding of state directives. The bill sponsor is Mahoney County Senator Michael Ruley, and he said that uh, Senate Bill 14 would provide a much needed layer of security for our elections. However, it, it's, I, when you hear the phrase centralization of voting efforts, it's, it's difficult to think of some of the things that were happening in 2020 uh, in, in that election that were a little suspicious. But I, it seems like you have some very specific suspicions of this, Chris. Well, I don't know. I mean, Jen Coon, what do you think? Do you think this is the, the motivations here are good by the legislature? Or do you think this is game playing so that they could rig the system if they wanted? Um, I, I really think this is Frank LaRose's desire to centralize things because, let's face it, that voting purge thing was was kind of a mess. When you leave it up to each of the 88 boards to do that, you know, 
I think that was like part of his defense as to why these errors occurred is like, listen, we don't have complete control over the way this plays out. So well, let me push back. Um, and I, again, I'd be interested, Chris, in your opinion, too. We, we saw for the first time in our history elected leaders trying to rig the system, that there were people in Pennsylvania, there were people in Michigan, there were people in Georgia that if they could have gotten away with it, would have stolen the election from the voters to keep Donald Trump in office. There's still people trying to do that. It's bizarre to me. So, so maybe then centralization isn't a good idea because at least if you have it in 88 counties with 88 boards of election, there's some accountability. I mean, say Frank LaRose was an evil guy that wanted to put the election into the hands of Donald Trump. Having it centralized would give him more of an ability to do that. Not saying that he would do that. There's no indication Frank LaRose would do anything like that. I'm saying if you had a secretary of state bent on that, and we have seen public officials willing to trample on the Constitution this year, they could. I just, I don't, I, I it's, it's hard to balance here because you, you do make, when you talk about the purging issue, you make a, a very good point that, that, that left to 88 counties, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to manage. But we also saw in this election what happens when you when you centralize stuff you know we had uniform rules about these drop-off sites that may have worked in some rural county but you know it made it very difficult for people in a in a populated county like Cuyahoga County you know it, it made the process much more difficult and so you know when you have one person making that decision for for one county where it makes sense and, and another where it doesn't make sense you know that's that's where centralizing stuff like this becomes dangerous because you you don't take into account what local people know and understand about your community and 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 what the what the needs are there. So well, I, I, let's stick with this a little longer. Then I mean, Frank LaRose has boasted far and wide about how perfect the Ohio election was. That unlike other states that did have this weirdness, Ohio's worked like a charm. So my question then is, why change it if what we're doing works? Why, why mess with it? I think this maybe boils down to something that's well-intentioned but could have unintended consequences, as you said, if the, if the wrong person is in charge. So I think it just needs to be really vetted and hashed out here in the legislature. He was talking more about the, the way the election was conducted, the way voters, you know, okay. cast their ballots and all that. Yeah, but with, it's still the, the registration lists are what gets you to election day. Anyway, I, I just, you're suspicious, right? Whenever they start to mess with the system, particularly because we had a president ready to throw out the Constitution to try and stay in office as long as he could, it makes you nervous to see anything change from longstanding practices. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion.